You're listening to a sermon audio from Cypress Church. You can listen to more sermons on our website or by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. We hope you enjoy the sermon and invite you to attend one of our services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Welcome, everyone. My name is Kerry Kaufman. I'm the pastor of Connection and Discipleship here at Cypress Church and uh, excited to be here and have another opportunity to share with you this morning. Thank you, elders and leadership, for letting me uh, come on up here and uh, Wanted to let you know the rumors are true. My son Ethan Graham Kaufman was born on seven seventeen seventeen, so pretty exciting. Um, you can't plan stuff like that. Seven seventeen seventeen, and he was uh, born at five o three a.m. Five pounds three ounces. So God has a sense of humor in the whole thing. Um, we were in the hospital four nights. We went home. We had to go back to the hospital for three more nights in the NICU because he had jaundice real bad, and so that was a little scary, but. Uh, now we're doing okay, and uh, everything's back to normal. Uh, he's growing, and so you'll see my wife Emily up there and Ethan are doing great. He's cute. Thanks, and so all that to say, thanks for your prayers. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for your support. Um, as through all this uh, new experience and craziness, um, it's been great to have this church family as a way uh, to have some support. And uh, I'll say this, um, James in his book, chapter 1, verse 17, says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And that's what Ethan is. He's a gift, and we are so grateful. So if I yawn up here, I doze off, just know why that's happening. Um, but uh, let's uh, say a word of prayer as we dive into God's Word together, and hopefully I won't fall asleep. <laughs> God, thanks so much for your goodness and for how you provide for us. You are a good Father, and uh, good things do come down from you. We thank you for that, and we also thank you for walking with us in the tight, in the tough times, too. Thank you for your goodness, even when things are hard and difficult. And we pray this morning that we would be receptive to your Spirit, that we would learn from what your Word has for us today, and we pray that... uh, you would have some good things for us to hear. Amen. Well, one of the things about having a son is that uh, I'm starting to ask myself uh, questions. I'm starting to have dad thoughts. Uh, You might know what these are. I'm holding my son thinking, man, how am I going to afford this kid? (laughs) You know? (laughs) Or or I'm, I'm rocking him thinking, how is this kid ever going to go to sleep? Come on, man, go to sleep, finally, at three in the morning. Um, and I'm starting to have other dad thoughts, like, what is it going to look like, the world that this kid is going to grow up in, right, in the next couple decades? Or other questions like, how is it going to look to raise my son to follow after Jesus in this world today? How am I going to do that? How is he going to make it? Man, so these are questions I have running through my mind, and um, it kind of brings up overall the idea of the, the big scary world out there that my kids will soon be running around in. What does God call us to in terms of interacting with that big scary world? These are questions that we face as Christians most of the time. How do we interact with the world around us. Because sometimes it seems like being a Christian is becoming less popular. It's becoming more difficult. And so how do we interact with that world around us? Well, 
Rod Dreher, in his book, The Benedict Option, uh, wrote just, just this year that the best approach for Christians is to do it like Benedict the monk did back in the medieval times. And what he did is he made these monasteries where Christians helped to refocus their lives on God and then hunker down and avoid the moral decay out in the world outside. They retreated into these safe little cloisters. And so that's what he's saying we should do today too. We need to regroup, we need to huddle up, and get out of that world that's going to fall apart. And some people say, yep, that's the way to go. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. And man, it's getting really even worse for us Christians out here. This is what we got to do. And so the question about Rod Dreher's book, and the question to us today is, is that right? Is that the right way to approach culture? And how we always answer these questions, whenever we hear anything about what Christians should or shouldn't do, we come back to what did God say? We come back to what does Scripture say about this issue? That's how we know what is on point, what God truly wants. And so we're going to go to Scripture this morning and see what did God say about this topic. So we're going to be in the book of Matthew, because Matthew noticed as an eyewitness to Jesus' ministry, he noticed that there were a lot of people in Jesus' time that had the same questions that we do today about this. They had questions like, Jesus, if we follow after you, uh, how are we supposed to actually do that? Does, that? does that look like retreating into monasteries, Jesus? Does that look like marching around the world and killing all the people that don't believe that are against us? Does that look like Shrugging our shoulders and just blending in to the culture around us. Adapting our views so that we fit in. Jesus, how do we do it? And so Jesus came unto this world and started teaching in the book of Matthew. And he told us all about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God. All the people that belong to him. And this is how we live. And so we're going to check it out as Matthew remembers it in the first gospel. So if you're not already there, go ahead and flip to the book of Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 5. And if you need a Bible, our ushers have some. They're going to be coming down. If you need a Bible, just throw up your hand. They'll give you a loaner, and you'll be able to follow along with us. Again, Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be starting in verse 3. So these are the questions that we face today. How should Christians approach society? Jesus here in the Bible, is going to, he's going to teach his disciples all around him, gathered on this Sermon on the Mount. And then Matthew's Gonna, a few decades later, he's gonna record everything that he witnessed and for his audience. And then we're gonna take that book of Matthew and the Holy Spirit this morning is gonna illuminate our hearts to learn what Jesus said about culture. So, let's dive in. Chapter 5, verse 3. So, here we go. Our camera zooms in in chapter 4. Jesus utters his first teaching in the entire New Testament, and we traditionally call it now the Beatitudes. So we're going to be here in verse 3. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So he doesn't tell us right away what to do. He tells us, no, this is who you are. As people who belong to the kingdom of God, as disciples of Jesus, we need to know who we are first before we have rules about how to live. So he's saying, okay, this is what kingdom people look like. This is what Christians should look like. They're honest. Verse 5, they're humble. Verse 6, they're eager to live upright. They're merciful. Verse 7, verse 8, they're focused on God. They're full of peace. And all the way down to verse 10 and 11, they're willing to suffer 
for doing what is right and following after God. This is what kingdom people look like. So he establishes this first, and then he moves into verse 13. Now we know how we're supposed to, we're going to figure out how to interact with people who aren't in the kingdom yet. So verse 13, he's going to share two metaphors with us, and the first is in verse 13 here. You are the salt of the earth. So Jesus looks all into the eyes of all his disciples scattered around him up on that hill, and he says, y'all are the salt of the earth. This is who you are first. We've got to establish that, and then we'll know what to do. So um, he says that, and then they figure out, okay, salt. All right, salt, salt, salt. Okay, so I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm learning this. Uh, okay, so Jesus, you mean like, Salt in our world, it helps preserve food and help it last longer. So you mean we're supposed to preserve society and help it last. And then another disciple is like, no, no, that's not it. We use salt in our fertilizers. So if you spread Christians all around the world, they'll help things to grow. And then another disciple is like, no, that's not it. Salt helps bring out the flavor in food. And so that's what Jesus is saying. We bring out the goodness in culture when we are peppered throughout it. Another person says, no, we're supposed to purify the world. No, we're we're salt like we're holy in the world, just like how salt is used in the temple sacrifices down in Jerusalem sometimes. So uh, which is it, Jesus? Which cultural connotation are you talking about? And then Jesus looks back at his disciples and says, yes, (laughs) all those, (laughs) all that. What I'm saying is salt is so valuable. It's so valuable to our society. Look at all the things you guys just came up with for how salt is valuable in our world. That's what you guys are like. You're valuable to this world, and you bring benefit. You truly improve society because you are in it. That's what he says about his disciples. You are indispensable to our world. But then the metaphor takes a bit of a negative turn. He says, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Now, lost its taste in the Greek is moranthe, and what it actually means is to become useless, and sometimes it even means to become foolish. And that's what unsalty salt is. It's foolish. It's useless. If you have unsalty salt, you're just going to toss it out. It's pointless. And that's what Jesus actually says. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So Jesus says, I'm calling you guys to be like salt, but if you're not salty, if you're not living in these beatitudes ways, if that doesn't characterize who you are, well, then you're not going to be useful to society. You're not going to be beneficial like I'm calling you to be. And so you'll get tossed out. So Jesus is saying, like salt, we're called to be indispensable to the world. And if you're taking notes on your sermon outline today, you've got some blanks to fill in. If you're a person that loves to fill those out and jot a lot of ideas down, you'll see on the screen. Uh, our first point, nominal disciples, like unsalty salt, are useless to the world. And so they'll be discarded. That's just what Jesus is saying. We're called to be like salt, making the world a better place. Now imagine if your refrigerator breaks, and so your friend loans you and says, hey, i got a fridge. Here, take, take this one. So you're like, hey, cool. So you bring it home, you shove it against the wall, plug it in, it starts to hum, and you throw all your food in there, and weekend's over, you go back to work on Monday, and then you get back Monday night, and you're like, oh, it's dinner time, and you open up that fridge, and your meat is all green, your tomatoes are fuzzy, and the real tragedy, your ice cream is a puddle. Oh, for shame, right? So sad. Uh, so what do you do with that fridge? 
you toss it out and you get one that works, right? <laughs> that fridge is destined for the dump. A refrigerator is an essential part of your home and you need it to make your home a better place. This is what Jesus is saying why Christians are supposed to be salt. We bring true benefit to society. And if we're not salty, we're just going to get destined for the dump as well. Unfortunately, we sometimes see this played out in real life. When a church shuts down, the glass Stained glass windows are boarded up and the property is given to an eager developer and none of the neighbors care. That church didn't invite me to anything useful. That church didn't clean up this neighborhood. That church just had events for themselves. They were too loud, it went too late, and they just flooded our neighborhood with too many cars. I wonder if Cypress Church closed its doors for good next month. Would any of our neighbors miss us? Are we essential to the flourishing of our city here, our neighborhood? Well, I've only been on staff for less than a year, and so I'm still on the newer side here, but I've been really encouraged to discover there are lots of ways that Cypress Church is trying to invest in our community. It's really cool. I I noticed that there's the Lincoln Family Ministry that hands out lunches to local homeless once a month, and We've donated eggs and candy to the Easter event the city did. We, we buy a table every year at the State of the City event. We donate the annual sheriff awards. We organize the interdenominational mayor's prayer breakfast every year. Uh, we've opened up our building to local fire departments and police department trainings. Uh, we've opened up our building to all sorts of school graduations that happen here, uh, public school graduations. I, I've also discovered anyone in our community can come to our AA meetings, our Celebrate Recovery meetings, uh, our Grief Share, Cancer Companion, all these programs that could bring true benefit to people and help them heal. And you see the picture on the screen too. We handed out a bunch of free cold water at the Cypress Community Festival a couple weeks ago, and that was great. Um, it's so encouraging for me to, to learn about all these neat things that God is doing here in our church where we're not afraid of our culture. Now we're trying to improve it instead. I think that's so cool. So as we move forward, we think, well, okay, salt, light, all that stuff, okay. But let's be honest. I've heard this message like a thousand times. Salt and light, right? If you've grown up in the church, you've heard this many more times before. Time to just sit back. I'm going to play Candy Crush until the worship team comes back up. Boring. Um, Well, I'd encourage you, (laughs) I've heard this message many times before too, but God doesn't care how much you know about the Bible up in your head. God cares about how you, how your life is transformed by His truth. How you live it out. What difference it makes in your life and in the world. So if this is a reminder for you today, let it be a reminder. I often need reminders like this over and over in my life. So, moving on to our next point. Jesus makes a couple analogies, uh, a different one here in verse 14. And maybe maybe you're thinking, well, my doctor uh, actually told me to avoid salt because he said it wasn't good for me. Okay, <laughs> let's move on to the next analogy about light. That's a little more palatable for us. So on to verse 14, Jesus again looks at his disciple and he says, you all, you're the light of the world. Now, light, again, is so beneficial to society, right? We need it. We need light to see anything and to truly thrive. And so Jesus says, you're the light. You are beneficial to society, just like light is. Now, he does that in two analogies here. 
First, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And the disciples would immediately think of Jerusalem, the holy city, the capital of the Jewish world, sitting on top of a mountain. And when those torches and fires up there were lit, it would be a beacon for all the dark countryside all around it. Now, has anyone been sailing, backpacking, camping, somewhere where it was really dark at night? Anybody? You know what that's like? Oh, I love getting outdoors. And and once you're out there, once you leave the land of eternal fluorescence down here (laughs) and you get out there, you realize man, I need these flashlights. I need this lantern. It's dark out here. And imagine that would be the world that Jesus' followers lived in, that it truly got really dark. Light was not so easy to come by, and it was essential for human flourishing. And so Jesus is saying, just like that, you guys are essential to human flourishing here in the world too. Dietrich Bonhoeffer Uh, wrote about discipleship like this. He says, it's as visible as light in the night as a mountain in the flatlands. Any community of Jesus, which wants to be invisible, is no longer a community that follows him. So we are called to shine like Jesus called us to. He has a second analogy here for us too. Verse 15, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Now think about a First century Jewish lamp would be like this little teapot kind of clay structure, and it just had a little wick at the end, basically like lighting a candle. So not a lot of light. But imagine again, back then things were really dark. There were no street lights. There were no parking lot lights on 24-7 right outside your apartment that always keep things so so bright. Um, so you needed you needed that little candle to see anything in your home that had barely any windows in it. And most homes then were back were like the clay or stone or wood, and they barely had windows, and they're one-room dwellings. So when you lit that little candle and you placed it on the stand, it would light up that whole house for the whole family. Now Jesus says it's better to put it up on a stand and not under a, a basket, not under a bowl, and that would be useless, right? It might even put the lamp out. <laughs> so it'd be that would be as foolish as unsalty salt to do something like that. No, you put it on the stand. So when a light is strategically placed, it can benefit the whole household. Likewise, Christians, when they are strategically placed in society, they can benefit the whole neighborhood, the whole community, the whole city, the whole family that they're involved in. So Jesus gives us more analogies like that. And he says, if you're taking notes again, genuine disciples like light are always valuable to the world. So Jesus' disciples are called to be like salt and light, making the world a better place. Now, is anyone a Michael Jackson fan here? (laughs) Any MJ fans? Oh, man. Check this picture out. Okay. Look, don't you love that outfit? That is great. Looks like he's going to space. <laughs> I love the 80s. Uh, he's holding the world. Can can we play this song? Is, do you guys have that cued? <laughs> Don't you love it? <laughs> I originally bought this song because it just made me laugh. Like he's got his kind of quivering voice and there's there's a kids choir at the end of the song and then they sing the last stanza like 28 times in a row and just oh let's make the world better and it's it's hilarious but 
Honestly, I think, okay, this is a little bit of what Jesus is getting to. He's saying, we exist as Christians to make the world a better place. That is our calling. And we're not going to use MJ's methods necessarily, but we're using Jesus' methods to get to the same kind of goal, making the world better. So think about that as you walk out and go to lunch. You can have that running through your head. (laughs) To go back to a different kind of analogy, anyone heard of William Wilberforce before? Back in history, might not have heard of him before. I didn't know too much about him until until I started looking into him recently. But um, so he was a British politician in the in back in the British Empire, and he became a member of Parliament. So he was almost at the very top of the known empire in the whole world. Very influential man. A year after he became into his office, he became a Christian. And that actually changed and radically influenced his life and how he thought about the world. And he started to think, wait a minute, this worldwide British slave trade all over the world, this isn't right. Now that I'm following Jesus, I need to do something about this. And because he was in a place of a position of power like this, he started to campaign against the British slave trade. And guess what? It took 20 years to get that slave trade abolished. 20 years! Sometimes being salt and light, it'll take a lot of patience. It'll take a lot of tenacity, but it's worth it. And actually, by the end of his life, three days before William Wilberforce died, he got to see that in the whole British Empire all over the world, slavery itself was legally abolished in 1833. And oh, what an awesome thing. William Wilberforce didn't become a Christian and then say, ooh, you know what? I don't agree that that's the right thing, but I'm going to retreat into my safe British suburb and just kind of write it out and that'll just happen. Or I'm not going to be a fighter and slander those British trade companies and, and bomb ships that are carrying slaves to make it right. He also said, no, I'm also not going to change my views, to just blend in and assimilate into Christianity, into the world around me. No, I'm going to stand up for what's right, and I'm going to reform the world. I'm going to heal it. I'm going to fix what I can in the time that I've been given. And it's the same thing that Martin Luther King Jr. did too. These reformers, these these people who made society better, were driven by their love for Christ and to see God's way made right in the world. They knew what it meant to have their light shine before men. So, maybe you're thinking, okay, those guys sound really heroic, but Carrie, you don't know the people around me. My relatives that don't know Jesus yet, they're jerks. (laughs) Just being honest. My neighbors are so annoying. (laughs) And my coworkers, they're idiots. I'm always cleaning up after them. I don't want to make their world better. I don't want to be salt and light to them. They don't deserve it. And Jesus hears that and he says, you're right. (laughs) They don't deserve it. They don't. But neither did you. And I saved you anyway. Neither did we when someone came into our family and made it a better place. Neither did we when someone came into our neighborhood or our city and made it a better place because of their call from Christ. And how can we, sitting here today as people who've found Jesus and have been changed, transformed by Him, how can we not pay that forward to our coworkers, our family, our neighbors now today? That's what Jesus calls us to. 
So how are Jesus' disciples called to interact with the world? They're called to be salt and light, make the world a better place. And this challenges the Benedict option. Real Christians don't retreat and abandon the world. They work to heal their culture, to fix it, to reform it. The kingdom of heaven, it's not a fortress besieged by barbarians. No, it's actually the church is the Lord's army, armed with the armor of God, like it says in Ephesians 6, and going out to storm the castle of the enemy, to set prisoners free. That's who we are. I'm in the Lord's army. Can I get a yes, sir? Yes. Yes. That's right. So, we look back, and Dreyer loved to refer to the Shire in the Lord of the Rings saga. Any Lord of the Rings fans here? Yes. Um, so he looked back at the Shire, and he said, man, we just need to hunker down into the Shire because the world's going crazy, and it's going to fall apart. And actually, the only reason the Shire existed by the end of the Lord of the Rings saga is because Frodo Baggins was willing to step out of his comfortable home and help improve the world. He was willing to step out of his comfort and to help save the world. And that is how we are called today too. So one last question that we have to answer today is why? Why is this really important to be salt and light in the world? Who cares? Why would we work to make the world better when our efforts are just so puny? What am I going to possibly be able to do that's going to change the moral tide of our culture? You can do everything you want to do. It's not going to stop the flood of our culture pouring over you. And isn't God going to come back at the end of all things and he's going to judge the world and he's going to make a whole new heavens and a whole new earth over again? So why would we fix the world if God's going to come and fix it for us anyway at the end of all things? Well, these are good questions and it might derail our whole point here. But Jesus has some great answers that carry us forward here. So Jesus says in verse 16, in the same way, being salt and light, in the same way, let your light shine before others. Now this is the only command in this whole section. So far we've just been learning about who we are. What did what disciples of Jesus really look like? And now he says, okay, here's the application. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Why? Why do we want them to notice that we're doing good things? To give, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is why. This is the reason for what we do. So like light flooding into a dark room, we Christians help people to see truths that they've never seen before. Like a porch light that moths are attracted to in the dark. We Christians are supposed to live lives that are so attractive that they draw people in to say like, why are you so generous? Why are you so forgiving? How could you be so patient with me after that last project I screwed up? How could you still talk to me after what? I did to the family four years ago. How could you? And then we can say, it's God. (laughs) He's working in my life. He's so amazing. It's not me, it's him. I'd love to share with you about that. This is what being light in our world looks like. So, they, they will hopefully, people will see our deeds and give glory to God. This is called lifestyle evangelism sometimes, where we, we get to say what the good news about Jesus is from our lips, but we also get to live that out in our lives so people can hear the good news, but they can also see what it looks like lived out in real life. 
This is what we are called to. So anyone, anyone grew up playing sports here? Soccer, baseball, football, tennis, whatever. So when you're running back, when you're running out onto the field, onto that court, how you play and interact with your team members, it reflects back on your coach. So if you run out there and you guys can't even communicate and your team won't even work together and you just lose and no one tries, man, it's going to shame your coach, right? He's going to walk away with his head down too because, man, my team just bombed this. (laughs) But if you run out there and your team cooperates and you're working together and you do great and you try your best, man, your coach is going to be proud. He's going to be like, yeah, that's great, guys. He's going to be honored. That is what Christians are like with our Heavenly Father. We run out into the world and we give it our best. We cooperate. We try our best. And as we do good deeds, as we benefit society truly, God is honored. That is what we are called to. So as we make the world a better place to inspire people to give God praise. Now, Some of us may look at the example of William Wilberforce and be like, wow, what a hero. Ending worldwide slavery, pretty much. That's awesome. But Carrie, I'm not a leading member of like one of the nation's most powerful governments. So what do I do? (laughs) Okay. Well, my friend Micah works at a, just a small company in Cerritos. He's a Christian. It's not a great company, not a great job for him, but, uh, he works hard there. He's really generous with his, uh, with his money, with his time there. He's started to organize, uh, uh, lunches with all of his coworkers. He's invited him over to his house. He's uh, smoothed out a lot of problems there at the workplace. He's started to help celebrate birthdays in the workplace. And lo and behold, people have noticed his work ethic, his generosity, his kindness at the workplace, and they're starting to ask questions about God. And then some of them start coming to church with him later on. Actually, one young man even started made a decision to start following Jesus Christ and now is serving every week in the church because of the connection he made with Micah as a co-worker. Praise the Lord! That's so good! So you don't have to be a world leader to make a difference in society. You can make an eternal difference in someone's life just by being a good employee, a good father, good mother, good neighbor. It's totally doable. We make the world a better place to inspire people to give God praise. Now, maybe you're thinking, okay, I got it. Sounds good, but I still have some lingering fears in my heart. Satan loves to keep us afraid, doesn't he? Oh, he loves that. Maybe you're thinking, wow, if I start to live boldly in my culture, in my neighborhood, in my family, to make a difference, to truly be a benefit to society, it's going to cost me It's going to cost me money as I buy bottles for the Cypress Festival or as I give gifts to my neighbors or whatever. It's going to cost me time. It's going to take a lot of time to invest in people. It might even cost me some relationships as people see what I'm doing and don't want anything to do with me anymore. It's going to cost. It's going to be hard. It's going to be scary. Well, Jesus doesn't sugarcoat that experience. He gets it. He understands. Actually, in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 7, verse 13, he says that following him is a narrow road. It's not super easy, broad path. It isn't easy, but it's good. And isn't everything worthwhile? Isn't everything worth doing? Difficult, but good. 
That's what following Jesus looks like. And if people's eternal lives are at stake in the balance, and God actually gives us the privilege to have an influence in their lives, how worthy of a cause is that? So great. You see, so, not like the Benedict Option, the church is not called to build an ark and to watch like Noah and watch the world drown outside the doors. No, we're called to build life rafts and grab oars and to start rescue the perishing, anyone we can find. And even if God, because he will, come at the end of all things and remake the world, new heavens and a new earth, there's one thing that endures, that lasts for eternity, from now until the end of eternity. And that's people. That's souls. They will last forever. So the influence we have in people's lives now, it'll make a difference for where they spend eternity. And what greater cause is that? To help them find God and glorify him. We can make an eternal difference in their lives. We make the world a better place to inspire people to give God praise. So as I've been thinking about this message and I've been working through these passages and thinking, okay, what does this mean for my life now? For where I'm at, for who I am? How does, how does this work in my life? And so one of the things I've noticed in my neighborhood, and we live in an apartment with 12 units in a little complex, and my neighbors, Jefferson and Mandy, are this great Christian couple, young couple, and they're so generous. They're always giving stuff to our neighbors. Every Christmas, like, there's been goodies out on everyone's porch, and every uh, Halloween there was candy, and at Easter there were Easter eggs in front of everyone's door, and they're always giving stuff away to our neighbors and buying things for them. And I think, man, these Christians are taking babies steps forward to make their apartment complex a better place so that it's a better place to live because of those Christians that live here. And as those as our neighbors notice that, they might start to say, why are they so generous? They're like the youngest, poorest people here. Like, how, how can they be so generous to all of us? Like, what is that? It must be something different. It's making me curious. Who is that God that they serve? So, I learned this spring, Emily and I left some uh, dryer sheets in the laundry room saying, enjoy some spring cleaning on us. And we found out our neighbors were pregnant and we bought them a card and said, congratulations, and got them a gift card to Target and just left it on the doorstep too. And we're trying to figure out baby steps forward, right? You and I don't have to abolish the slave trade in our lives like Will and Wilberforce, but he's still a cool example. And God is still calling us to do what we can in the places we are placed in with the time we've been given. So what is God calling you to, to be salt and light in your world, to truly benefit your family, your society, your neighborhood? What is it for you? Maybe if you're a student, it's just obeying your teachers or your your parents so that they'll notice, man, this student is just always cleaning up after themselves, doing a great job. Like, what's different about this one? They're not like my other students. Or maybe you're all you've got is college tuition payments and debt, and you've got no resources to give out, well, you've got time and you can serve at a local ministry in the neighborhood or help at a nonprofit in your uh, city. Maybe you're thinking, okay, I that couple down the street is about to have a baby and I could give her all my maternity clothes. I could give them our old baby clothes and help them out. Maybe you're the parent that knows your kid's teacher on a first name basis because you've 
donated the supplies that they fell short on this year, or you helped in the classroom, or you wrote them a thank you note. Maybe you're the parent or grandparent who always brings snacks to your kids' games, not because it was your turn to do it, but just because you wanted to be generous with snacks for the kids and the parents. And everyone's like, man, this is great. Who is this guy? Who is this gal? Maybe you're the employee who gets to know your coworkers personally. You actually set aside time to hear about their issues because no one else is listening to them. Maybe you're the person that works so hard at the workplace not to get the raise or the promotion, but you're thinking about eternal things. No, you work so hard so that you set an example so that people are like, wow, what motivates you to, to work so hard like this and do such a quality job? You can share about God with them. Maybe you're that hospitable family that welcomes your kids' friends in. Those friends that whose home life, it's fallen apart. Yet they can come into your house and get a hot meal and feel welcome, maybe even stay the night. Maybe you're the grandparent that keeps calling and writing notes to your grandkids. Even when they've moved away, even though some of them have maybe even left the faith and aren't even involved in church anymore, and you still write them and call them and say, hey, I love you. I'm praying for you. I can't wait to see you at Christmas. This is what Jesus' disciples are like. A true follower of Jesus is someone who engages the world and truly benefits it, makes it a better place. We make the world a better place to inspire people to bring God praise. So let's be as valuable as salt. Let's be as indispensable in our world as light so that someday soon someone may ask us about our God. Go ahead and join me in prayer if you would. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ways you've provided for us. You are a good God. The Father of lights who gives us good things. And Lord, in the ways that you've provided for us even to know you, Lord, we are so grateful. Help us in our gratitude. Help us in our thankfulness to just want to share that good news with other people and to live in a way that backs that good news up, that you are the best thing for us. You are the best thing for our world. You bring light. You bring healing. You bring peace. You bring joy. You bring meaning and purpose. God, help us to communicate that message well to be salt and light in our culture. And Lord, give us courage when it's scary. Give us courage when it will cost us. Help us to move forward boldly. We pray these things in your name. Amen.